Today's message is about uh, this. How did Jesus view his death on the cross? In the Gifford lecture series given in Scotland, one of their renowned speakers on natural theology, a man called Sir Alistair Hardy, posed the question, would Jesus be a Christian today? And his answer was this, I very much doubt it. I feel certain that he would not have preached to us of a God who would be appeased by a cruel sacrifice of a tortured body. I cannot accept the hypothesis that the appalling death of Jesus was a sacrifice in the eyes of God for the sins of the world, or that God, in the shape of his Son, tortured himself for our redemption. I find such religious ideas to be among the least attractive in the whole of anthropology. To me, they belong to quite a different philosophy, different psychology from that of the religion that Jesus taught. So if you ask the question, would Jesus be a Christian today? Sir Alistair Hardy says, resoundingly, no. But we're not here today to ask Sir Hardy if Jesus would be a Christian today. We want to ask Jesus if he would be a Christian today, if he would believe the things that Hardy disbelieves. And I think we are going to see that Jesus would say resoundingly, yes, I do believe in the penal substitutionary atonement, which I suffered for you. Uh, Brandon laid out this morning the picture in specifically in Passover and in the suffering servant that Old Testament salvation was offered and pictured vicarious penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus would clearly affirm that. In John 5.39, he said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. What he's saying there is the entire Old Testament is about me. You, religious leaders, who are legalistic in your bent, you go back into the scriptures thinking, here's all the rules, and if we can follow, understand how these rules are to be lived out, and we live those out perfectly, then we will have eternal life. And Jesus, this is that view, and he says, no, no, no. Go into the scriptures and see that it's really all pointing to me. And he, there, what he's really meaning is, that we are go, you, we all fail to live up to the law, therefore we are under the wrath of God. And so look at the sacrificial system, look at the Passover, look at uh, the suffering servant. All, the, all of these speak about me, that's what the scriptures are about. Now, specifically, we ask the question, did Jesus have Brandon's view of the Passover? Did, uh, did in, in sense... Did Jesus himself believe he was the fulfillment of Passover? 
At the very beginning of the ministry, God sent a forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah, for Jesus. And among the first words that John the Baptist says upon seeing Jesus after his baptism, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb immediately brings to our minds the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. John the Baptist is saying, there's the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. And what has he come to do? To take away the sin of the world. It wasn't just some... uh, some kind of symbolic uh, passing over. God passed over the sin of Israel, as Brandon said. And now the Messiah has come to be the Passover lamb for the whole world so that God could pass over our homes, dispense with his judgment upon us because it is the Messiah himself who takes those sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist said that, but did Jesus believe that? The answer again is yes. When we go to the end of his life, as he goes into the upper room, we know it as the Last Supper, that supper that he is Sharing with his disciples is a Passover meal. And during those meals, the father of the household would teach the importance of each of the elements, each of the parts of the feast. Jesus now takes the role of the father, of the teacher of his disciples. And as he takes the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then when he takes the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sin. John Stott says this, Thus Jesus modeled his sayings upon the ritual of the interpreting the Passover This further clarifies Jesus' understanding of the purpose of his death. In other words, Jesus spoke of himself as a sacrifice. Indeed, he was most probably speaking of himself as the paschal lamb. So that the meaning of his last parable was, I go to death as the true Passover sacrifice. What about the suffering servant? Did Jesus see himself as the suffering servant? Now, Brandon read a portion of what that suffering servant came to do, and he alluded to the fact that the suffering servant actually comes to do more in the future. That he actually comes to bring the kingdom of God to us. That he comes to reverse the curse and all of the pain and broken relationships that the curse brings us. He comes to heal. Jesus begins his ministry by going out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. Luke says he then comes back to Galilee. He does some teaching 
Then he goes into Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue. He picks up the scroll of Isaiah and reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is another picture of the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53 as well. Jesus inaugurates his public ministry by pointing to himself, declaring these words are fulfilled right now in me. If anyone might question that, we don't have this interpretation correctly. Just turn to Acts chapter 8 and see what the disciples of Jesus believed. In this story, we have an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scriptures. And God literally drops Philip into his presence. And we read, so Philip ran to him. Heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was, like a sheep he was led to slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, this scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. So as he reads Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, Jesus' disciple says, This is about Jesus Christ. And as Brandon also mentioned in Luke chapter 24, that Jesus spoke to the men on the road to Emmaus. He taught them all about himself, the fact it was necessary for him to suffer and die. And then he points to All of the scripture, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Brandon didn't have an opportunity to go through all of the Old Testament. Jesus apparently had some more time and was able to go through more passages like the Day of Atonement, like the animal sacrificial system, all in the law of Moses. Describe the tabernacle more fully as well. Then he went to Isaiah and was able to lay out more passages, certainly centering in Isaiah 53. Then he goes to the Psalms, and probably Psalms like Psalm 22, which begins with the alienation of the psalmist from God and goes on to describe 
in detail what it would be like to suffer crucifixion 400 years before crucifixion was used as a penalty. Speaks of Jesus Christ and his atoning death, the entire Old Testament. So, would Jesus believe in today's Christianity? First, Jesus believed he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament predictions about penal substitutionary atonement. We also see that Jesus himself directly taught about the meaning of his sacrifice and his life experience shows the meaning of his sacrifice. So first of his teaching, I like it. I think um, John chapter 316 can summarize that for us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, some say these are Jesus' words. Others would say this is John summarizing Jesus' message. Either way, this is something Jesus believed. That God the Father has sent him into the world to save us. Save us from what? Save us from condemnation. Because our sin placed us under the wrath of God. We were condemned. Jesus is saying, I don't come to say, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned. Didn't come in the world to do that. I came into the world to save you from that condemnation, which he did on the cross. Many times he pointed to the centrality of the cross. Luke 19.10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He looked out at the world. He saw us lost, condemned, damned. He came to save us. More specifically, he says in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is trying to correct his disciples. They're arguing about who's the greatest, and they all seem to be want to be one up on the others. And Jesus is showing the very heart of who he is. His ministry is servanthood. But he describes it. The Son of Man came to serve first and foremost as a ransom. Now a ransom, as we all know, is a payment. It's a payment to free someone. And so Jesus is giving the meaning of his death. His death is going to pay the penalty for our sin. But we also see his person described in this passage. He says he's the son of man. Now that's a reference to to the Messiah. But to be the son of somebody means you're of the same nature as that person. I'm the same nature as, as my father. So Jesus is speaking also about his nature. He is a human being. He's born as a baby, just like we all were born. He grew just like we all grew He is 100% 
human. There's also a reference to the fact that he's divine. Where do we see that? We see that in the word came. See, Jesus was born like we were, but we come into existence when we're born. Jesus was pre-existent. He came into the world. He already was, and he had a purpose as he looked at coming into this world. His whole purpose was, Father, I will go into this world in order to be a ransom. That will be my purpose, to save the many, to make the payment. So it means Jesus was preexistent. Whereas this verse by itself doesn't mean preexistent, means that you're God. But one of the other places where Jesus talks about his preexistence is in his conversation with the religious leaders. He says, before Abraham was, I am. It speaks of his preexistence. He existed before Abraham existed. But he didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said, I am. And the result was the Israelites picked up stones to stone him. Just because he said that? No, because the word I am is a reference to the very name of God. Yahweh, I am that I am. That's what he told Moses when Moses says, what's your name? God says, I am that I am. The Jews knew it well. They wanted to put him to death for blasphemy. So we have in this passage, man, God, coming for a purpose to save us. He had, the Savior had to be man. He had to be God. He had to be man because only a man could make payment for a man. Person, only a person could make the payment as for a person. As Hebrews brings out, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away the sin of man. That's not equal. It had to be a man. But also had to be more than a man. Because injustice, if I am a man paying the penalty for your sin... I can pay for one person because I'm one person. I, I like to do this with, uh, with the kids. I will say, I'll, I'll give them a quarters. And then I'll say, does anybody have change for a dollar? And they'll all say, yes, they all have change for a dollar. There'll be five of them around. I said, okay, give me the four quarters. They all give me the four quarters and I give them the dollar. And they don't like that. They start screaming because they're saying, wait, you only gave us one dollar, but we gave you five dollars. And I say, but, I, but you gave, it was four quarters for the dollar. And, and they're smart enough to know that one dollar doesn't pay for five dollars. So too, one man can only pay for the sins of one man. To pay for the sins of the world, to pay for ge- the sins of people, generation after generation, billions of people, you had to be much more than man. You'd have to be God. And that's who Jesus was. The God-man who took our sin so we could be free.
Jesus taught over and over again how critical his death on the cross was going to be. The disciples didn't always get it. In one of the scenes, we see Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give various answers. Some say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others think you're Elijah. Others say you're one of the prophets. And so he says, and who do you say I am? And Peter steps forward and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you got it. And then Jesus continues. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Why did he have to be killed? It's necessary because he's making a payment. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance of me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, we can say all sorts of wonderful things about Jesus Christ. We can say, he, He's the greatest teacher that ever lived. He's a wonderful prophet in the top echelon of the prophets who ever lived. We can say he is the greatest person who ever lived. We can say he is the Messiah. We can say he is the Son of God. But if we leave out the cross, if we move away from the centrality of the cross in the meaning that is very clear of what we're teaching you today, Jesus' answer is, get behind me, Satan. You see, Satan wanted to stop the cross. That's what the temptations are about. He wasn't able to. Satan wanted to, to stop the disciples from sharing that message because as wonderful as Christ's death was, if that message isn't shared, it dies. Nobody ever hears it. Nobody's ever saved by it. He wanted to stop the disciples. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And so we're out there, the church is out there preaching about Jesus. So Satan wants to distort that message. Change the meaning of the cross so it's not about our salvation. He continues his work. And and Jesus describes it as this. You're setting your interests on the interests of man and not God. And I think it's very easy to compromise the message when we are trying to... We're thinking from a human perspective and especially how can we accommodate ourselves to the cultural mindset. And one of the reasons... We're speaking on this topic. We are hammering it home over and over again three times this weekend is we want you to grasp the cross, as Brandon said, for what it is. So we are transformed. We are in love with Christ through it. But it's also because 
There is a danger in the evangelical churches of churches accommodating our world and our culture to make the cross a little more palatable to a culture that does not like abuse. Jesus is very clear. If we accommodate in that way, we have fallen into the trap of Satan. We have diminished the cross. It loses its power. Jesus not only taught it, but he lived this. He experienced it. And we see this as Jesus himself moves toward the cross. He anticipated, he lived under the shadow of the cross from, from his earliest days. But now it gets closer and closer. He said it. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood. And now he moves to Gethsemane where he begins to feel the impact. He begins to most clearly and vividly understand what the cross is all about. He's beginning to feel it inside. And it's at Gethsemane that he is going to make the ultimate decision. It's not when he's being led up Calvary. He makes the decision in Gethsemane, I will do the Father's will. But he is in torment. He is in agony. He is fearful. He is sweating as drops as of blood. He's afraid. He's begging the Father, if the Father might take this cup from him, take the cross from him. And we say, is he so afraid of death? The one who said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Is he, is he a coward? Is he more fearful than the disciples that will follow him who... who Suffer martyrdom praising God? No, he wasn't afraid of death. Look at when he finally ends up on the cross, nailed, tortured, tormented, ridiculed. He looks out and says, Father, forgive them. Then he looks out for the needs of her, his mother. Look after her. Then he looks out for, for the concern and the cries of the thief next to him. Truly, you'll be with me in paradise today. He wasn't afraid of death. He was afraid of the cup. The cup was the judgment of God. Read this again from John Stott. In that case, the cup from which he shrank was something different from physical torture and death. It symbolized neither the physical pain of being flogged and crucified nor the mental distress of being despised and rejected by his own people, but rather the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world. In other words, of enduring the divine judgment which those sins deserved. That's the correct understanding. is strongly confirmed by the Old Testament usage for in both wisdom literature and the prophets, the Lord's cup was a regular symbol of wrath. Is that right? The cup was about the wrath of God. That's what Jesus could not endure? Yes. We see it in his cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Jesus' greatest time of need and the Father forsakes him. 
if Jesus' death on the cross is only about showing how much he loves us, why would the Father abandon him? You would think the Father would be there alongside, bolstering him, upholding him, loving him while he endured this. But we see the opposite. The Father is, has left him. And he cries out in agony. He can't even call him my Father anymore because he doesn't have that relationship. He's simply God. It's because the Father left him, not because of his sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. But because of our sin placed on him. These are also the first words of Psalm 22. Jesus is saying very clearly, I am fulfilling Psalm 22, which pictured the cross. He's forsaken by humans. He's forsaken by God, but he's also forsaken by men as they stand far off from him and ridicule him. That's the penalty of sin. Separated from God, separated from each other, separated from ourselves. Jesus experiences that. And then he says, Tetelestai, translated, it is finished. There's so much in that word. It's, it's the completion of God's, Jesus Christ's work in recreation. When God finished creation after six days, he said, it is finished, and he rested. Jesus is coming to bring a new creation, the kingdom, to reverse the curse. And he says, it is finished, and he rests his head on the cross and dies. How does he accomplish the new creation? By paying for that which broke the creation in the first place, our sin. Also, well noted that the word tetelestai was often stamped on bills and taxes, tax bills after they were paid, having the meaning paid in full. Jesus said he came to be a ransom. He was the payment. (laughs) Jesus' death on the cross was a payment paid in full. Imagine a bank account in heaven or a sin account in heaven. And all of your sins are written in that account. The debt you owe God, which brings judgment upon you, and Jesus stamps to Telestai, paid in full. Where does that leave you? Free in your relationship with God because of what the price he paid. So, yes, Jesus would be a Christian today. He said, I fulfilled the Old Testament and, and its teaching of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. I taught it. I experienced it. That's what I lived and died on the cross. And the entire Christian life is based in and grounded in penal substitutionary atonement. And we get that from Jesus' teaching. Put it another way, C.S. Lewis once said, 
I believe in God as I believe in the Son, S-U-N. Not because I see it, but by all, but I see all things by it. So what he's saying is, I, I don't need the, the proof of God itself is, I can see life precisely and distinctly by what I learn about God in the scriptures. Uh, another way is, uh, what I'm trying to get at is, we can prove something by teaching it, or we can sh- prove something by showing the way we live presupposes a truth. And Jesus is saying, this is the way we live the Christian life. It's all based on penal substitutionary atonement. Therefore, we can presuppose that's the truth. Jesus said, our justification comes through penal substitutionary atonement. He says, the meaning of belief is only understood through penal substitutionary atonement. And he said, the way, the motivation for Christian living comes through penal substitutionary atonement. So I just want to briefly look at three of the passages that show these. Uh, Our path to justification. How are we justified? Justification means we are brought into right relationship with God because our sins are taken out of the way and we are brought the righteousness of Christ. So... How do we get that right relationship with God? By the way, it's the word that's used much more often in Scripture than the word we use, saved, are you saved? You're justified, are you justified? And Jesus gives a parable to teach who's justified. We sang a song growing out of that passage. But it's the passage where the Pharisee goes up and he prays all about himself, showing God while he should be accepted on his own merits. And then a tax collector goes up and he's the exact opposite. He's saying, I cannot get to you, God, by my own merits. I need you to get me there. And Jesus turns the tables on everybody because everybody thinks, oh, the Pharisee's the one God accepts and the tax collector is the one God rejects. But instead... Jesus is saying is the tax collector is the one God accepts and the Pharisee is the one he rejects. So what is that prayer that brings a person into justification? And it says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. So let's look at that prayer. He's saying, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. Impossible. So God, I'm looking to you for mercy to save me. It's got to be of you. But the word, it literally is not mercy. Mercy. The word literally is be propitious to me, a sinner. And there's a big difference. Uh, because mercy is what a lot of people might depend upon who say, God can just overlook my sin. Okay? I'm a sinner and God, I, I can't get to you. So God have mercy and just overlook it. 
It's a very, very common view today. A former Southern Baptist Seminary prof said it very succinctly. God is free to forgive. The Father does not need to punish the Son in order to win the right to forgive. See, the tax collector doesn't believe that because he doesn't say, have mercy on me. Like, you can just forget it, God, you know. He says, be propitious to me. The word propitious means satisfied. And he's saying, God, for me to be accepted, somehow you have to be satisfied. Your person, your justice, your righteousness, your holiness has to be satisfied. And I can't do it. A B.B. Warfield said this, and I think he really captures our hearts. He said that in our hearts there is a deep moral self-condemnation which is present as a primary factor in all truly religious experience. It cries out for satisfaction. It knows that indiscriminate forgiveness of sin would be precisely the subversion of the moral order of the universe. Our hearts cry out for expiation. You see what he's saying here is, we know deep down that if somebody says, you're forgiven, there's still, there's this still sense of guilt. There's still the sense of somehow I have to pay for it. And that if there isn't a payment, then the whole moral order of the universe is out of whack. There is not justice. I believe the tax collector knew that. He said, your justice has to be satisfied, God. You satisfy that. You be my savior. The tax collector is anticipating the cross where Jesus would be the propitiation for our sins. The payment. He satisfied God's wrath. The meaning of belief. You know, we, we, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he sent his son that whoever believes in him. So how do we actually get connected to the Father? What is that belief thing that helps us appropriate whatever happened on the cross? Jesus gives us a picture of what it means to believe in John 3.14 and 15. The verses that precede the summary of John 3.16. And he says this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See that? Whoever believes in him, what's this belief? Well, it parallels the story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. So what happened there? Well, the people were sinning. They were going against God, and so there was a punishment for their sin. God sent poisonous snakes that bit them, and they died. And so they cried out, God, somehow, save us. And so God says, okay, we're going to put a serpent on a pole. And if you're bitten and dying, and you look at that serpent, you will be saved. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him will not perish. Now look at the parallel. 
The Israelites sin, we sin. The penalty is death administered by the poisonous snake. The penalty for our sin is death. The way of salvation was to look at the serpent lifted up, believing this saves me. For us, sin, the penalty of death, we look to the cross believing what? He is our Savior who saves us. And what is, what's on this pole? A serpent. Why a serpent? Because that's what administered the punishment of sin. And so we see a picture, a symbol of the punishment of our sin. So to believe in Jesus Christ is to look at Christ and see him as that serpent, to see him as the one being punished for our sins. The entire Christian life is lived out of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the motivation for godly living. And that's our final passage here. Luke chapter 7, we've talked about it before. We have a story of Jesus is come to a Pharisee's house. He's having dinner. But this immoral woman comes and she leaves the wall where she's supposed to be staying. She breaks social convention. She comes in and she places herself at the feet of Jesus who's, who's reclining at dinner with his feet outwards. And she begins to wash his feet with her tears, wipe them with her beautiful hair, and then anoint him with the expensive perfume that she has around her neck. It is the perfect symbol of Christian living. It is worship. It is service. It is pouring out all that we have. It is the lifting up. It is the love relationship with Jesus Christ. How did she get to that point? And that's what we see in this story. Jesus gives a little parable to the, the Pharisee who's really at this point really resistant to Jesus. And so Jesus gives a story and he says, you know, somebody's owed, two men owe, owe, owe a master money. One of them owes $10,000. The other one owes him a million dollars. Remember now, in those days, if you owed a debt, you could be thrown into prison until you paid that debt. You might be able to somehow come up with 10000 Not many of us are going to come up with a million dollars. And he says, if both debts are forgiven, who's going to love him more, the one who forgives him more? And even the hard, hardened Pharisee at this point says, well, I suppose the one he forgave the most. And Jesus says, that's what's happening here. You see this woman... See, you didn't do anything for him because there's no love relationship. Why? Because you don't realize the forgiveness that's coming, that's offered to you. On the other hand, the woman has not stopped serving me, worshiping, doing all of these things for me. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. He is forgiven little, loves little, and he said, your sins are forgiven. And I think the picture here is she came knowing he was a man of grace who could forgive because she felt the love of Christ through the forgiveness of Christ. She served much, the Pharisee not at all.
And so we might say here, okay, the Christian life is lived out of love motivation. So we have this view that Jesus died on the cross to show how much he loves us. Not to pay our sin, but just to say, this is how much I love you, I'm willing to die for you. And when we see that love of Christ, we are now motivated and moved to love him and live out the Christian life. There's two problems with that view. One, this passage. Yes, it is true, we are to live the Christian life out of love. But how do we grow in that love? This passage doesn't say, he who is loved much, loves much back. It says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. So if you want to grow in your love for Jesus Christ, grow in your understanding of the meaning of the cross of Jesus Christ, how much he has forgiven you, start to see how sinful your sin, I need to start seeing how sinful and vast my sin is to see that God has forgiven me much more than a million dollars worth of sin. And it cost him, he made the payment for it. He who is forgiven much loves much. We only understand the love of Christ by how much we are forgiven. The second thing wrong with that idea is that the cross is only about showing the love. Is, is, it's insane. If I were to say to Steve, I love you, Steve, so much that I'm going to jump in front of this trailer truck and die to show you how much I love you. Would you like that? You'd say, he's insane. (laughs) Jesus goes to the cross and says, this is how much I love you. It's insanity. That who you want to follow? But if Steve's in the middle of the road and he bends down to get something, he doesn't see this trailer truck coming toward him, and I run out there and I push him out of the way at the cost of my life, you know what Steve's going to do? He's going to start a foundation for me. He's going to (laughs) make... He's going to get a scholarship at the high school in my name. He's going to never forgive me. He's going to tell the story over and over and over again. And that's what we would do when we understand the meaning of the cross. It is the love of God. It's the love of Christ. But as the sacrifice for our sins, for he who is forgiven much loves much. You see... Not everybody's going to believe what we're we're saying here today. There's going to be arguments back and forth. They will continue through the ages. On earth, this question's never going to be settled. But it's a different story in heaven. Because as we read John's pictures in heaven, when Jesus Christ is exalted, they don't say, We praise God and the Son of God. They say we praise God and the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. I read John's vision. Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. They shall reign on earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, in the living creatures, in the elders, in the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In heaven, the question is settled. The Lamb who came and died for our sin as a ransom is exalted for that very reason. Our Lord, we thank you for the churches that are standing so solid and so firm. Lord, I pray churches, evangelical churches, would never compromise on this. That they would make this central to their worship, central to their understanding of how to become a Christian, central to how to live out the Christian life. Lord, we praise you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor, glory and blessing. Amen.